with me to the little book of Jude in your New Testament. If uh, you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 964. And just go to the back and then just turn a few pages to the left and there you'll find the little book of Jude. It's a short book. It doesn't even take up an entire page in the chair Bible there in front of you. It's 25 verses. I'd like to read just a short portion of this for us this morning, and then we'll give our attention to it in detail. We have been going through this book. We, um, this, I think, is our third message in the book, and we've gotten all the way to verse 4. So uh, I don't anticipate that pattern going forward, um, but I do anticipate to finish this book, Lord willing, in, uh, by the end of the summer. So we're going to read just the first four verses for our scripture reading, and let me just uh, lay these out for you. The first two verses are introduction. This is typical for New Testament epistles. It identifies the author, the recipients, uh, some words of blessing are pronounced. The beginning in verse 3, Jude really tells why he's writing. In fact, he, he says he had to pivot, as it were. He intended to write one thing, and instead... Uh, found it necessary to write something else, and he gives the reason for that in verse 4. And then the rest of the book, which we won't take time to read this morning, is really giving examples of uh, the kind of disturbance and trouble that uh, Jude is concerned about. And he gives Old Testament examples of how this is played out among the Lord's people, and even gives the fact that the apostles warned about these kinds of things. Follow along with me as I begin reading Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We'll give our attention primarily to verse 4 this morning. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for these quiet moments in a place that is outside of the elements that is air-conditioned, that is easily heard, that is just set apart and conducive to doing nothing more than sitting and being able to hear. And so, Lord, we thank you for this place. And so I pray that as we have made preparation to come and hear, that you would indeed speak. 
not audibly, but Lord, as you do, you would speak through your word. And that today we would know that the words being spoken are the words of God as we understand your words. And help us to apply them to our current context. And Lord, help us to avoid the tendency to apply them to other people. And be glad that other people might hear this or other people who need to hear this. So Lord, give us grace to hear these words for ourselves. To apply them to our lives. To know that they were written for our admonition and our instruction. And that it's through these that you speak to each one of us. And we'll thank you for the way that you will answer this prayer and honor yourself as your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. It was after a relaxing week-long summer vacation in Florida with their 10-year-old son that Robert and Angela Berry went to the airport to fly back home to Orlando. Just before they left, there was a young girl that had befriended their son while on vacation, and this young girl offered a gift to their son. It was a teddy bear to take home with him on the long flight. As the berries reached Orlando International Airport, they got all their belongings together, and they took that teddy bear and went through the screening at TSA. And immediately, the attendant at TSA pulled them aside along with the teddy bear and said there was a problem. And what they found inside that bear was a 22 caliber handgun that was loaded. The TSA worker noticed the outline of this gun inside the bear, immediately notified security, and upon noting this, they found this loaded cal- 22 caliber handgun, and the Miami Herald later reported that that gun had been stolen in 1996 in the state of California. Robert Johnson, a TSA spokesman in D.C., said this is the incident that, I quote, underscores the need to screen everyone and everything, no matter how innocent the people or their belongings may appear, end quote. When you read this little book of Jude that stands near the end of your New Testament, Jude gives a similar admonition. You need to be cautious. You need to screen everyone and everything, as it were. And not just screen things with regard to their touching on the faith or the truth of the gospel but you need to be vigilant and actually contend for what is true. And this is the message of this little book, as Jude states very plainly for us in verse 3, that God's people would screen, would be alert, would be looking out and contending for the faith, the truth of the gospel. And Jude makes this appeal to us, specifically in verse 3, when he says, I found it necessary to write to appeal to you concerning this. 
And therefore, he's giving this appeal to every single believer. If you wanted to sum up the book of Jude, I believe you could sum it up in these words, that it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is a book that is not simply written to clergy or the pastors or the theologians. It is a book that is written to people in the seats like you. And the appeal is is that you would be so familiar with the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel that you too might screen things and be discerning and be careful and be alert to certain things in order that you might contend for the faith. Why does Jude feel it so necessary to bring this about? Why does he feel it necessary to speak in these terms? Well, look with me at verse 4. The little word there at the beginning, he's, he's giving a reason. I want you to contend because certain people. Jude warns about certain people that would actually want to creep into gospel preaching churches in order to distort something. Why is it necessary for every believer to contend for the faith? Because there are certain people that really are bent on leading people away from the faith. To pervert, as it were, the grace of God and to distort the sense of the authority of our Lord. He speaks of these people throughout. He says in verse 4, he says certain people. Why didn't he name them? We don't know. But I think Jude is hinting at the fact that there are certain people, and he probably is hinting at the fact, and you're aware of some of them. Nevertheless, he doesn't specifically name them, but he's thinking of them throughout this book. Look at verse 8. He says, In like manner, these people, referring back to those certain people of verse 4, he says they also are like the ones he's just described in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Verse 12, these are like hidden reefs at your love feast. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch prophesied. Verse 16, they're grumblers and malcontents and so on. Verse uh, 19, it is these who cause divisions. And so what would you call these certain people where Jude says they creep in among you and they create havoc among the people of God? I think we could really refer to them in this kind of modern vernacular. Influencers. You ever heard of that? That seems to be a buzzword nowadays, right? And I'm not saying all influencers are bad, but the idea of an influencer is someone who, who holds sway or influence over a particular group of people. It's typically associated with social media, and you have these people that are influential, and they're influencers of other people's thoughts, they're influencers of the way other people spend their money. And I think what Judah's saying is, be careful because there might be influencers among you. And they're striving to exert their influence in certain ways that aren't godly, that actually take away from the truth of the gospel. And so how does Jude warn about these certain people, these influencers, as it were? We noted this last week that Jude talks about their position within the church. Verse 4 again, that these certain people have crept in unnoticed. In other words, they're marked by subtlety. They're not readily apparent. They're like 
a handgun and a teddy bear. It appears simple and even kind on the outside, but really holds potential for great danger. He says they are subtle in verse 4, crept in unnoticed. And then he says, who were long ago designated for this condemnation. In other words, they, they aren't new, they aren't novel. This has always been the case among the people of God. And he'll give examples of that beginning in verse 5 and running through the end of the book. And then he says they are ungodly. Again, this is all review from last week. They are ungodly people in verse 4. or They're living without the reckoning of God. And what we noted last week, and what I want to encourage you with this morning is this. Again, Jude is not writing to the liberal church down the street who long ago has forsaken the gospel, who has no pretension of believing any of the Bible, but is simply some kind of social gathering and tags Christian on the name. Jude is not writing to those kinds of churches and those kinds of people. He is writing to churches like Heritage Baptist Church. He's writing to churches that are conservative in orthodoxy, churches that, according to verse 3, hold a common salvation. They take seriously the truth of the gospel. They take in earnest the truth of God's word and give their attention to it in grave detail. And Jude is writing to churches just like this one. And he says, watch out, there may be a subtle influencer among you who seeks to turn away from the truth of the gospel to go in a different direction. Every true gospel preaching ministry must be alert to this and must be aware of this. Are you? Or do you tend to get comfortable at church and say, well, that's the pastor's job, which it is primarily to preach the truth of God's word and warn and instruct. But Jude's writing to people in the pew and he says, but you need to contend. You need to be in earnest about this. Well, what are we to look out for? What are the kinds of things that would creep into a church like this and turn it away from the gospel? Let me just try you out on this. Let's say someone came in here and started having conversations or even stood up in a Sunday school class and said this, you know what, I'm rethinking the fact that Jesus is actually very God of very God. How many of you, a red flag would go up? You'd be floored, and I'm glad you would. But remember, these people are marked by subtlety. No one's going to do that. Their denial of the Lord, we're going to see in a minute, I don't think is going to be doctrinal. It's going to be very plainly against the plain teachings of Scripture. There's a subtlety to it and even how it's approached. And here's the approach that James or Jude mentions, rather. Look at verse 4. These are ungodly people who do two things. Number one, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And two, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jude speaks of their perversion of God's grace. Again, last week we gave some extended attention to this. It is, it is to twist God's grace into sensuality. Sensuality meaning sexual immorality. We noted last week that, that the fallenness of humanity is marked by a darkened spirit that gives them completely over to sexual immorality. You can see it growing like a cesspool in our culture. And the Bible says that as children of God, you have been saved and set free from that. And you are marked by being distanced from that. But Jude says, beware, there are people that would come in and would want to twist God's grace in order to promote this. In other words, to speak as if how how forgiving God is and how patient he is. and, And God wasn't really demanding of this. Don't be so prudish about this. In fact, the Apostle Peter had spoken of this. Look back at 2 Peter. If you'll turn back just a few pages, go to the left. We're going to look at 2 Peter probably repeatedly throughout this series because 2 Peter and Jude are very closely aligned. In fact, I have commentaries on my shelf, and when they come in a set, they often put 2 Peter and Jude together because so much of the content is similar. And there's always a question, who wrote first? 2 Peter, did Peter write first, or did Jude write first? Or were they looking at some other document? Well, my own personal opinion, I think, is that Peter wrote first because Jude, I think, refers to Peter in his epistle. But nevertheless, the the content is so similar that you're going to see Peter saying a number of things that that Jude says, and look at what he says about this issue of sensuality. Look at verse 17 of 2 Peter 2. He says, these are waterless springs. Now, who are the these of verse 17? You have to go back to chapter 2 and verse 1 where Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And so he's talking about these false teachers that would creep in subtly, teach heresy, teach that which is displeasing to God. Verse 17, these false teachers are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking out loud boasts of folly... They entice by what? Sensual passions of the flesh. These false teachers among the church actually entice somewhat by sexual immorality. And notice who they entice, verse 18, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Who is that? People barely escaping from the error? I would describe that as a new convert. Someone who has just found faith in Christ and experienced forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ alone and been cleansed of their sin. And it says you have these people that entice those young believers through sexual immorality. And notice what it says in verse 19. They promise them freedom. They promise them, yeah, you've been forgiven. You're you're free. You don't need to worry about how you live now. All your sins are, are, are forgiven by God. There's freedom now. There's grace in God. 
But it says, verse 19, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What he's saying is, you have these people that, that preach a freedom in Christ, and it doesn't, you, know, you don't really need to change your behavior. It's not that bad. You don't really need to distance yourself from that. And it says, you're sucking those people right back into the sin from which they've been delivered, and their last state becomes worse than the first. And this is what Jude, I believe, is referring to when he says, they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And we looked at that last week. Salvation is the power of God delivering people not just from hell and eternal damnation, but from the sin that takes them there. A sensual lifestyle. You say, well, how can this be? I mean, I mean, I mean, do, do churches really struggle with this? I don't have time to take you there this morning, but you read Revelation 2, and you find two of seven churches that Jesus addresses in the first century in Asia Minor. And he says to those churches, there are a number of good things in you. You, you, have, you have suffered persecution for Christ. But he also says to those churches, but among you there is gross immorality and you need to deal with it. And so this is the kind of thing that will infiltrate into good Bible-preaching churches. And it is the ministry of some certain persons to overthrow the message of God's deliverance from these things, deliverance from a sensual culture that we would walk differently and live differently and look differently. But this morning, I want to direct our attention really to the third of these things that James addresses, in, or Jude rather addresses. I'm going to say James a lot, I know. Just know I mean Jude, all right? That Jude addresses in verse 4 of Jude 4. I know that's a long introduction, but I promise this won't be long. Jude says there are two things that mark these people. They are perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. And what's the last one? They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are people who deny Jesus Christ. Now again, what is it to deny something? It is to repudiate or, or disown, to claim to not know. And so I scratched my head in reading it this week, and I say, how could Jude be talking about people who deny Jesus Christ, and yet he says they're subtle in how they come in? Again, I don't think it's a blatant denial of the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ or any of those truths that are foundational to the gospel. But there is a subtleness to this. Because notice what he says. He says, they deny Jesus Christ, but they deny him as only what? What does the text say? They deny him as only master and Lord. 
Their denial of Jesus Christ is akin to this. They deny something about his important position in their life. They deny that he is a master. The original word in Greek that lies under this noun for master is where we get our English word despot. You heard that word before? We often use it pejoratively or in, in a, a, a condescending connotation or even a poor connotation, and we say, he's a despot. And what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean by that and what the word conveys is this. It's somebody that has absolute authority, unquestioned authority. You have no cause or reason to question it. And in the first century, it was actually used of one who had an absolute authority over other people, over slaves, as it were. Now, the Bible does not condone slavery, but it does take that which is familiar in the first century. The first century was, was a world of slaves. You, there was the Roman Empire that had conquered everybody, nearly, and everyone else was a slave to the Roman Empire. And so the Bible uses that which was familiar to its first century audience to describe certain things that are true. And what it says is, is that Jesus is like a master. He's like a master for his people who are under his authority. And what I find fascinating is this. Jude knows this very well. And you remember who Jude is? He's the half-brother of Jesus. And yet... Did you notice how he opens this little book? Look at verse 1. Jude, a what? A servant. That word is better translated a slave. It's this idea of, of somebody not who is, who is like an employee with an employer, but it's somebody that actually has no rights because they are entirely given over to the will of their master. They're a slave. And Jude says... I know this about my half-brother, Jesus Christ. I am rightfully his slave. But there are people, certain persons, that creep in among the people of God, and they reject that notion. I don't think they reject it outright by what they say, but by how they live. But the fact that they are slaves of Jesus Christ or they are followers of Christ has no bearing on how they live and, and what they think and, and how they behave. Yet the New Testament is very clear that Christ indeed has authority over his people and to be a Christian is to be obedient to Jesus Christ. He also says that they deny Jesus is master and he is Lord. Now the term Lord is the term for nobility. It's somebody that does have a high position of authority, but their authority has, has been acquired and therefore there's a nobility to that. And it says that Jesus is Lord, and indeed Jesus is our Lord, but how did Jesus come to be Lord or have authority over everything? Let me just ask you this, does Jesus Christ have any authority today? When he says something, is it authoritative? Well, how would you know? Well, look at Matthew 28. And here we're going to be doing a lot of turning in your Bible, so stay with me, all right? Matthew 28, at the end of the gospel, 
resurrection's recorded in verse 28. You have the crucifixion recorded. Now the resurrection. And then you have this appearance by Matthew to his followers at the end of the book. We're very familiar with verses 19 and 20. But look at verse 18. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus now, having been resurrected from the grave, he came and he said to them, his followers, all what? All what does it say? Okay, authority, all right? He has authority, but authority where? In heaven and on earth. Does that leave anything else? Anything out? Jesus comes to them in his resurrection and he says, now that I have been resurrected, I have all authority. It's all mine. And that's so important because that's why he can say in verse 20, go out and tell everybody who I am and teach them to observe everything I've commanded them. Because my authority is binding, and every human being will give an account to me someday. So teach them what I've said. Here's what it looks like. I have it on the screen for you. Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, teach people about me, baptize them, and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's somebody's phone. <laughs> Just make sure that's not an alert. Anybody else getting like a tornado alert or anything? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on it. It's okay to interrupt me for that, okay? All right? <clears throat> we'll go right downstairs. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? His authority is binding. Jesus demonstrated his lordship by defeating the greatest enemy, which is sin. And how do we know he defeated sin? Because he defeated death. He rose from the grave. Therefore, Jesus says all authority has been given to him. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. And literally that means he was declared to be the Son of God in a powerful position, a position of authority, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And this was Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There's another warning, I know. Are we okay? Okay. I just, if anyone tells me we need to go downstairs, we will. All right? <laughs> All right. So this is the point. Powerful position. Jesus Christ has the powerful position of authority because he was resurrected from the grave. Now, when you go back to Jude, Jude says you have people in the church and they're denying this authority that Jesus has. Why are they denying his authority? Or how are they denying his authority? Again, I don't think it's they're up in a Sunday school teaching something blatantly against who Christ is. It's actually the way they live their lives. They claim to be a Christian in some way, but when you look at their lives, they're breaking all of his commands. There's no binding authority. They take them as maybe suggestions for a better life, but it's kind of like a salad. I'll take some of this and not some of that. And Judah's saying, you have these people that creep in among you, and what they're doing is they're 
proliferating this notion that you can have a little bit of Jesus here or a little bit here, but you don't really need to hear about all of that. Don't be so extreme. And they're denying his authority. Why is this important? Why is it so important that we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because do you realize, my friend, that has always been God's intent? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Again, let's just piece some verses together and get the Bible's clear teaching on this. 1 Corinthians 15. When I turn there, many of you think of resurrection because this is the resurrection chapter in the New Testament. But notice how this chapter, in the middle of it, talks about what happens in the end of time. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 22. Paul makes this argument. He says, for as in Adam all die. What's he referring to? He's saying we, Adam was the first man. We're all in Adam. Adam rebelled against the authority of God and plunge the race into sin, and because of that, everybody dies because we all sinned in Adam. But, verse 22, or so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if I'm in Christ and through faith in Him and reliance upon His work, I'm now alive in Him and will live forever with God. Verse 23, but each in his own order. We don't get to see eternal life right now, as it were, or this glorified body right now. Christ is the first fruits of this resurrection to come, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end. He says, after this resurrection, then comes the end of all things. And what will be the end or the terminus or the goal of all things? Verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, Christ delivers the kingdom, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be ultimately destroyed is what? Is death. What the Bible says is this is the goal of all things. That Jesus Christ reigns now spiritually in the hearts of his people. Someday he will reign visibly on earth. And he'll do so until finally he has put down all question to his rule and authority. And Philippians 2 puts it this way. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is what will take place. Because this is God's intent to honor Christ as Lord. Jesus said this of himself in John chapter 5. He says, the Father judges no one, but all judgment has been committed to the Son, that all would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And this is the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, think about this with me. God has said that by one man he will rule the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be exalted. He has authority now. He's proved it by his resurrection, and he will reign, and he has right to reign in your life. But there is one person who hates that, and his name is Satan. And in the garden, very early, you had God's image bearer, Adam and Eve, in the garden. 
and Satan in order to attempt to thwart God's plan, deceive them into having their own rule. Why let God rule over you? He's withholding something from you. He doesn't have your best at heart. Be your own God. Rule yourself. And they took the bait. And they rebelled. And ever since then, Satan has been propagating the same lie to the human race and even to God's people if he can. Satan himself said, I will be like the Most High. I desire that which is God's alone. He tempted Christ with this. Don't need to turn there, but back in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about this. He, he talks about the prophets of old and how they relied on the word of God and they spoke the word of God. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, but Satan has his prophets too. They're false prophets. And they'll teach you to be your own boss, serve yourself, love yourself. And this is a lie that streams through the course of humanity. I mean, think about it. How many times do you hear when people start talking about their problems today, it's this. Well, the problem is you just don't love yourself. You need to think more about yourself. You need to take time for yourself. You're not giving yourself enough credit. And this kind of thinking can creep right into the church, right among the Lord's people. That really, I deserve something more. I deserve a lot better. Yeah, I'm being mistreated. Yeah, it's me. How does this happen? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. How do these things creep into a church? How do they creep into a Bible-preaching, gospel-believing church? This rejection of Christ's authority, making myself God and thinking of me first. How does this happen? 2 Peter chapter 4. Paul exhorts Timothy this way. He says in verse 1, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Here's Jesus' authority. He's the judge over everyone. Everyone will stand before him. And by his appearing in his kingdom. Verse 2, preach the word, literally preach the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Keep preaching the gospel, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and his ultimate rule and authority. Why? Verse 3, because the time is coming when people will not want to hear that. They'll not endure this sound teaching, but they have itching ears, and they want to accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, how many pulpits today are filled with people who stand up there and simply tell people what they want to hear? Yeah, it's right. You are mistreated. And you do need to love yourself more. And here, let me give you these five steps for how to be an overcomer. Let me give you these three ways to bring peace to your life. 
Let me give you these things. And the people have itching ears, and they fill up huge auditoriums because that's exactly what people want to hear. Paul says, Timothy, you cut it straight. Don't tell people what they want to hear. You tell people what they need to hear. And here's what they need to hear. Jesus Christ is their rightful Lord. And they should bow the knee to him. They should surrender their will to him. Because my greatest problems aren't outside of me. My greatest problems are inside of me. And it's a heart that will not obey. It's a heart that is stubborn and hard that rejects the authority of Christ. I think this is what Paul warned Titus about in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, there are people among you who profess to know God. They look Christian. They talk Christian. They profess to know God in some way, but they're detestable. They're disobedient. Unfit for any good work. They say something on the outside, of course I'm a Christian, of course I love God, look, I come to church, I worship, but you look at their life and it's filled with disobedience. Now let me caution us at this point, because sometimes in sermons like this, there are people that are very sensitive in their conscience, and you think, this week I have disobeyed God, is this talking about me? And I just want to reiterate this point from last week. There is a world of difference between somebody who sins and runs after it and somebody who sins and is grieved and runs away from it. We all still sin, beloved. The question is, am I excusing it? Am I glossing over it? Am I continually searching it out and looking for it? Or is my heart to kill it? To run away from it. Paul's talking about people that say they know God, but you look at their life, they're not running from sin, they're running after sin. And that leads us to this in closing. Sobering words by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7. Turn there with me. Remember Judah saying that these are kinds of people that creep in among you. They deny Jesus as Master and Lord. And Jesus had something to say to this in his most famous sermon on the mount. Sobering words beginning in verse 21, but I want to look back at verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15. The context helps us interpret verse 21. Verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right? Like a teddy bear with a gun in it. How will we know if, if, if they look like they're in sheep's clothing? Verse 16, You'll recognize them by their fruits, by what they produce. Because after all, are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears a good fruit. It produces that which is good. But a diseased tree bears bad fruit. It produces that which is evil. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. In other words, don't always listen to their words. Watch their life. That'll tell you what you need to know. 
That's why Jesus says in verse 21, by the way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now stop right there. You might say, well, is Jesus talking about I have to do good works to get to heaven? No, what has he just talked about? He just talked about false teachers and knowing them by their fruits. And he says there's going to be false teachers that say, Lord, Lord. In fact, they do all kinds of miraculous things, but they have no heart to obey their Lord. And the proof is in the fact that their life betrays them. Verse 22, Jesus says, on that day, what day? The final day when people stand before him, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many, many works in your name? Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. You have not come to submit to my lordship in your life. You claim to have some relationship with me, but there's no heart change. There's no fruit of that because your life is different and you're running away from sin instead of after sin. And Jude warns you about this. About people who come in to places that hold to the true gospel and they say things like, I know the Lord and the Lord does this. And you look at their life and there's no evidence of a changed heart. There's no desire to truly obey the Lord. There's no grief over sin. And Jude says, beware. You must contend. You must call it out. You must lovingly confront. Why? Because it's the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith as once for all delivered to the saints. Why is this so important? Think with me of the outside world. What does the world, our culture, call it when somebody says, Lord, Lord, but doesn't live like it? What do they call it? Hypocrisy. And how many times have you talked to somebody, a neighbor, a friend, and you've invited them to church, or you've encouraged them to read the Bible, and they've said things like, well, the church is full of hypocrites. And I find it amazing that unbelieving people oftentimes are picking up on this and God's people can be blind to it. I'm not saying they're always right. But we could probably all give an example or two. And Jude says, I'm cautioning you. Beware. Be careful. Contend for this faith because if you don't Live it out. You muddy the gospel. There's nothing to it. Any church who holds the common salvation of Jesus Christ, the fundamental truths of the gospel, is in danger of two things. People coming in that will pervert God's amazing grace 
and people who will deny Christ's absolute authority and lordship. So be cautious and contend. I came across this quote this week. The man said this. He said, some people look at church this way. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a radical new birth. I want a pound of eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy just $3 worth of God, please. It's disturbingly familiar, isn't it? We want to believe there is a good and gracious God who accepts all people, and let's just call each other Christian and brother and be fine with it. But any time we come to grips with the fact that this eternal God whom we serve and His Son, Jesus Christ, is absolutely holy and righteous and actually demands the same of us, we no longer like Him. And now it's become mean and nasty and I'm going to go somewhere else that will treat me differently. And yet the call of God for each man and woman who knows Jesus Christ as Savior is a changed life. It's a miraculous new birth. Constantly changing into the image of Christ through a spirit-enabled obedience. And that's the power of the gospel. Let's not muddy it. Let's bow together in prayer.